The dictionary definition would be the likelihood of something happening, like how likely it is for a six-sided dice to land on five, or how likely it is to choose a rock and destroy scissors in the rock-paper-scissors game. That's psychology, man. <laughs> that one's not entirely probability. That I mean, one depends on how well you know the person. Sure. <laughs> An easier example would be tossing a coin. When a coin is tossed, there are two probabilities. We see head or we see tail. And we can sometimes, in very unlikely scenarios, see it land on its side. But if we bring mathematics inside this, we can say that landing tail is one out of these possibilities. So Britannica Encyclopedia has a nice description for this. The outcome of a random event can't be determined before it happens, but it will definitely be one of several possible outcomes. The one that will happen eventually is said to be determined by chance. The word chance is valued a lot for some people. Sometimes this valuing is so much that we see superstitions. Like if you eat chips during a game, the Warriors will win. So you would stop eating chips during that Raptors game from now on because it's bad luck and it lowers the possibility of Raptors winning. Or in other words, it destroys their chance. The concept of superstition is a psychological phenomena. It is created by instrumental conditioning. Your brain somehow learns the contingency between a behavior and its consequence. So if you learn that the behavior of eating chips makes Raptors lose, you would never do it again, right? <laughs> yeah. The problem with this is confirmation bias. If you do that and then you go, oh, wow, the Raptors won. You're like, my superstition is confirmed. So I'm <laughs> only going to do that action from now on. I am so guilty of this, <laughs> especially with my so many dice, dice and more dice. I have like 20 <laughs> sets of dice. It's a problem. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I don't care about facts when it comes to dice. I just care about how I roll. I will put the ones that roll badly away in my dice jail, even though statistically it has the same chance of rolling that number again. Say it's a one out of a 20 sided <laughs> die. It, it's going to have the same chance of rolling that one again even though it's already rolled it, but I put it away because I think it's going to roll it more. I will also, like, think about my dice energies. Like, sometimes my dice are cursed with bad energies, so I will, like, do salt purification rituals cursed on them. Dices, wow. Yeah, to see which ones are blessed or which ones are cursed, because some of them are definitely cursed. <laughs> okay, now I gotta reveal a secret here. I'm I'm not that unscientific when it comes to my dice. Like I'm not that bad. <laughs> this madness actually does have a method to it. Salt water is more dense than regular water, so the dice will actually float on top of it. And floating dice means that if I put a spin on them, the lightest part will rise to the top. If there's air bubbles in my dice, I can see if they lean to certain numbers, like one, which I do not want. That's a smart. So this actually comes into game rigging and how some people set those up. Hollow rigging of dice is actually the best way to get a consistent number. But as well, sanding down the edges so they roll and bounce in a certain way works as well. This is not a recommendation to cheat on games. This is not an advice show. <laughs> you're, not you're an a pro, advice Sherry. show. You're a pro, Sherry. You're a pro. Probability seems to be that simple, but we're in size section, right? We always talk about applied aspects of science. So why should we care about probabilities? One of the most important applications of probability and its math is seen in science. Science is filled with experiments and trials. Imagine we want to test a drug or a new treatment for a disease. As scientists, we create two groups, two groups that are made from people more or less similar in all traits, whether it is weight or height or anything. 
Then, for testing the treatment or the drug, we assign it to members of group 1. In this case, group 1 is called the experimental group. The experimental group is the one which receives the treatment. What happens to group 2? We call them the control group. As we have discussed before, the control group is made up of members who do not receive any treatment. So after assigning the drug or treatment, we record the results. Let's say the treatment worked on 10 people out of 15 people. Five people did not show any response to the drug. Now we use probability to realize that 67% of people show responses to the drug, while 33% don't. Because the results look satisfying in our hypothetical scenario, we can potentially conclude that the treatment works. Side note, it's not that easy to test a drug. It needs to pass numerous tests to ensure it's working. After passing all stages of drug testing, it can then be sent to pharmacies across the country or world. But in our simple hypothetical case, let's determine that 67% is sufficiently high enough that over the 33%, we can make the conclusion that the drug slash treatment works because the new treatment leads to success more frequently than does no treatment. Sometimes I wonder if all of our sciences are based on this. In that case, what would happen if someday the technology is so advanced that there is no probability, you know? So we can essentially predict anything for sure. No probability, no chance, no doubt. Do we have to throw all of our sciences into garbage? Because they are based on probability and the majority? The problem with that is that science will always have that wavering bit because we don't know that much. And this dives into quantum mechanics a little bit. So I think during lasers, we actually talked about Young's double slit experiment of those photons landing in that exact arrangement for the banding pattern after you shine a laser through a double slit. Well, that has two like kind of philosophical backgrounds to why it does that instead of Mm -hmm. just landing regularly. One of them is the pilot theory that they're kind of guided and follow away to their landing spot. Mm -hmm. But the other one is the multiverse theory of probability. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're... Yeah. yeah. So it's where you're like, there's a certain probability of it, the photon landing here, 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 and here. It's most likely going to land here, but until it lands, it has all the probability, all the possibility of landing anywhere else as well. But that comes from lack of knowledge, right? Because we are not sure sure where it would land. But what if one day we are sure? So that all of our sciences are based on not being sure then, right? This this dives into more philosophical theories of determinism versus chaos theory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we're not... I mean, philosophy does play a role in knowledge and all that. Yeah. But this stuff isn't testable. Mm -hmm. So it's not technically considered scientific because science is having a hypothesis and trying as hard as you can to disprove that hypothesis. True, yeah. Karl Popper, man. We talked about instrumental conditioning briefly in our first segment. Just to recap, instrumental conditioning or operant conditioning is about the relationship between a behavior and its consequence. We see a lot of these in slot machines. You might wonder how. According to science, our brains are wired in a way to learn the relationship between a behavior and its consequence. So, if a behavior has a positive outcome, we continue to do it again and again, which would be the case for a reward. If a behavior has a negative outcome, we learn to stop doing it. 
which would be the case for a punishment. Both these systems are flawed in that superstitions may occur because of behaviors. Think of slot machines as a reward system. At the first moment you win a prize, your brain learns the relationship between the behavior of playing the game and the outcome of winning the prize. So your brain tells you play more to win more, and you play more and more with the hope to win more. And that sounds poetic. <laughs> Yeah, this poem becomes tragic if you lose lots of money, right? <laughs> <laughs> the way slot machines are designed is smart. There are multiple ways that we can get a reward. In a fixed ratio, every three times that you play the game, you win $10. In a variable ratio, for different variations of the game, if you play the game, you win $10, whether it's two times, ten times, or maybe never. That happens to an average Fixed intervals, every three minutes that you play the game, you win $10. Variable interval, for different intervals of time that you play, you win $10. Sometimes it might be two minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes it'll be a long time coming. But it always averages out to a certain time. Do you want to go over this one more time again? Because yeah, you see people might be confused between variable ratio and variable interval. So what would be the difference between those? Okay, so variable is always, it's going to be something different every time. But ratio is going to be the number of times. Interval is time. True, yeah, okay. Okay, so studies on pigeons have shown that the reward system based on variable ratio is the most convincing for your brain to keep doing an action. Because your brain doesn't know exactly when it is going to get a reward. So it tells you to play and play because you might win something. And that is why slot machines are smart. Next time you start playing one of these games, remember what we told you. You might lose less, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, Kian, we're just going to jump right into this. I told you not to research this. Yeah, I, I had a very creative um, thread. <laughs> Love some cooked spaghetti noodle as shoelaces, eh? Yeah, that made me scared. <laughs> but he haven't researched anything, and I'm so excited to share the Monty Hall problem okay, with you. Okay, let's see what happens. So, say there's a game show host, mm -hmm. and the game show host is like, these are three doors. Door A, B, and C. And behind two of these doors, mm -hmm. there's a goat. Okay. And behind one of these doors is a car. Is a brand new car. <laughs> so the game show host tells you to pick a door. Mm -hmm. Pick a door, Keon, A, B, or C. I have one choice. You pick a door. I don't know, B. All right, so you picked one door. And then the game host show goes and opens door A, and there's a goat. And the game host show goes... Okay, do you want to stay on your door B or do you want to switch to C? Here's where the Monty Hall problem gets people really confused. Because what's the probability? Would you rather stay or switch? I'd rather switch. All right, you switch. So let's discuss the probabilities of this. Why did you switch? Uh, let me think. Wait, so in that case, it's, it's, it is 33% each of the doors, right? Yeah, it's 33% for each of them. And then that one would be 33%, the other one. I wouldn't switch, actually. You wouldn't switch? <laughs> no, I wouldn't switch. Why? I would keep the door that I had initially. Like What's B. the percentage of you isn't, getting... Isn't that 50%, that one 33%? But what was the percentage of you picking B at the beginning? What's the percentage of the car? 33%. It doesn't change. The probability doesn't change when you more information comes to light. But didn't we close one of the doors? We opened one of them and there was a goat behind it. Yeah, like didn't we, we see what, what is like on the other side? But of that it? doesn't collapse the probability mm -hmm. of there being... 
B being a goat behind it as well. So, would you rather pick two doors at once or one door? Two doors for sure. So, isn't me opening a goat behind A to show a goat behind A and having C be an option to jump to, like you can pick A and C at the same time、mm-hmm. rather than just B? Because if there was a goat behind C, the game show host would have revealed that goat, and then it would be like picking A and C at the same time. Yeah, true. Yeah. So wouldn't you rather pick two doors? Yeah, true. Yeah. So that's the Monty Hall problem, and it gets a lot of people confused because they're like, "Well, there's two doors left closed, so it's fifty-fifty, right?" But it's not because the Monty Hall problem is basically you get to pick. Two doors in a really convoluted fashion,、mm-hmm. or you get to pick one door. So switching doors, you would actually have a sixty-six percent probability of having a car behind oh, it. Oh, so I should have switched, right? Yeah, your initial <laughs> guess was right.、Yeah. You thought about it too I hard. I changed my mind. <laughs> did well, I lose the car? Yeah, you did. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm not rich enough to buy a car for a hypothetical problem. 